imagine what it would be like as a child growing up in an alcoholic family with addiction running like a thread through your family tree, suffering physical and emotional abuse and feeling shame and guilt and desperate to escape it all? Unfortunately, I'll bet that many of you listening can identify with that picture all too vividly. Hello, I'm your host, Mike Weissman. And in this week's episode of Standing Stones, I was blessed as I sat down with Laura, a good friend who bravely shared her story of restoration, or as she describes herself, a rebel without a cause who was redeemed through her encounter with Jesus. What you'll learn to love about Laura, as I have, is her infectious humor and her straightforward, vulnerable, yet fun-loving personality. In fact, she carries the unofficial title of CFO chief fun officer at her local church. Laura will do just about anything for you. Just don't ask her to cook. That said, we've cooked up a great interview. Let's dig in. Laura, welcome to Standing Stones. Thank you very much. It's great to be here. It's good to see you. All right, let's get one question out of the way. Why do you refuse to cook? Well, I've tried many, many times to cook, and if you give me a simple thing, I will ruin it. And so it frightens me, and I've just given up on it. (laughs) My husband asked me to brown some almonds, and I set the uh, oven almost on fire, so (laughs) I'm not doing it anymore. And you slyly got him in the kitchen at that point. Yes. And that's been the story. It works. <laughs> it if it works. works, don't fix it. All right. There's, there's the first <laughs> lesson for all of those who are listening today. Laura, in your, in your intro, um, I found that you and I share something very much in common. And I don't know if you know this or not, but we both come from Air Force families. That's great. Right. My dad uh, was an Air Force colonel. And here's a memory that I have. And I wanted to ask you about this as, as we move into our, our talk. I remember that time of every three years and out, we would move into a town, we'd be there three years, he would get his papers, his transfer, and and we'd be gone. And for me, I didn't realize until all these years later that two things happened for me. One, I could make friends very easily. But two, I didn't invest much in relationships because it was too painful to leave. So I caught myself in this weird place of when we'd move to a new city, I'd be the guy trying to fight my way into the crowd because they already had their established kind of clicking, you know, strata. And it dawned on me by the time I got out of college, I didn't have any friends. <laughs> I didn't have any friends because I didn't take a lot of time to invest in them because I remember that when I had to leave, it was really hard. Yeah. Um, so I was kind of this man with no country, kind of caught in between. Well, what was your experience like? I don't really remember a lot of my uh, childhood. What I do remember about the the Air Force stuff is I was always looking forward to going to the new place. Mm. Now, my brother and sister, they hated it Okay, as far as I can remember. But I was always looking forward to going away. And that's always been my MO. It's like the new place is going to make it better. Mm. So, um, yeah, I, I love the adventures. And that's what I remember most is like, man, we lived in Germany and that was cool. Yeah. And we lived in Washington, D.C. and that was cool. But I have very, very few memories of my childhood. Yeah. But I knew that I was weird. And so that <laughs> going to a new place was going to make it better. Got but it, it didn't. It didn't. No. 
There was no place to run. There was no place to run. But yeah. that's, that's like my, yeah, let's run. Yeah, you know, it's interesting. I remember telling my wife probably a couple of years ago, you know, she, she grew up with friends from uh, kindergarten that she still knows to today because she kind of anchored herself when she moved from Kansas mm-hmm. after she was born into Monrovia, California, and that was basically her life. So she had that underpinning of stability. And I remember telling her, I literally have very little memory of maybe 11 years old and back. I, I, I don't remember it. It's all, I have photographs, but I don't remember the people. I don't remember the experiences. Like you said, it was that, okay, suck it up. Here we go. We're, we're ready to move on. And there is an excitement that comes from that. And you yeah. can kind of get this do-over, right? Another fresh start. Yep. But I kept finding myself back in the same place, yeah. like you're saying. So Laura, let's talk a bit about your childhood here. You've mentioned uh, military background and family, moving a lot, looking forward to maybe a new season with new friends or just new exciting opportunities. But what are, what are the things that stand out most vividly to you in, in the middle of these growing years? Uh, my best friends were my pets. Mm. I loved my pets. Okay. And um, we had a dog that died right at Christmas. Snoopy, I think was his name. And my parents uh, brought home a little puppy at Christmas Day. <laughs> And my brother and sister in a stocking and my brother and sister ran towards that dog. Wow. But I just sat there on a cushion, just sobbing until my brother and sister had petted the dog. And I just, I couldn't move. I was so excited. And (laughs) they brought that little dog in the stocking to me and I just was crying and crying. I was so happy. And so animals were my best friends. I didn't really, I don't think I had a lot of friends. Yeah. Um, our family, it was a difficult family and I don't have a lot of memories of growing up, but our family was swimming in alcoholism Mm. and we have come from a long, long, long line of alcoholics and prescription drugs. So my grandfather, uh, he actually died in the gutter of alcoholism and was homeless or he'd been kicked out of the home. Let's put it that way. Yeah. And my great grandmother also, um, she died of cirrhosis of the liver. So, uh, it's been a, it's been a challenge. Yeah. Um, so I, I, I walked around, I remember walking around with my shoulders up to my ears just and and telling myself, you know, put your shoulders down, put your shoulders down. There's a lot of stress involved with alcoholism in the family. Yeah. So I was the youngest of, uh, three kids and I was the scapegoat and also the court jester. And there are certain roles kids take on in the family. Of course. And so the scapegoat is the one who gets blamed a lot. So was court jester your way of kind of coping with the atmosphere in the home? Yes. And court jester was also the charming one. And I remember at five years old going up to my grandmother and just singing Hello, Dolly to her. And like (laughs) in the middle of it, and she just said, oh, you're just the best. And I was, you know, I was really funny and really cute. Yeah. But I got in trouble a lot too. And I I was rebellious. And so, you know, if my mom told me to do something, I'm like, "Mm, I don't think so. And wow. my, my brother and sister would just go, yeah, we'll do that. And they, they, they didn't do it. But if you told me to do something, I had this sort of feeling like that's not right. Yeah. I'm not going to do it because it's not right. I mean, I also had this un, uncanny conscience that would say, I don't think that's the right thing to do. Mm-hmm. And I wouldn't do it. And then there was also this rebelliousness, like I want candy <laughs> and I'm not going to eat yeah. turkey because right. I want candy. Sure. There was, it, was, it was strange. So did you find yourself in a place where you didn't know who to expect to show up during the day? 
you know, in terms of the behavior in, of, of mom and dad? Or, or was it kind of a Jekyll and Hyde thing? You, you didn't yeah. know who? Yeah, it was, it was definitely that because the worst memories of it were that um, it was very, very, very untrustworthy situation. And especially being that I was the scapegoat, um, I remember in high school, when you're the scapegoat, you've got all this chaos going around, but you don't look at the elephant in the room. Yeah. So both my parents were alcoholics, and I was about 15 pounds overweight, 20 pounds, but that was the focus of the family, my weight. Oh, dear. And so I wasn't allowed to have jeans like everybody else in mm-hmm. high school, and I had these polyester pants, red polyester pants with a line going down the middle, and they were breaking apart at the seams on the inner thigh. And my mom wouldn't buy me any more pants because I was overweight. And that was the focus of the family because we couldn't focus on the real issue. And that's the craziness. And so I had this incredible shame. Mm. But what was also going on in the family was I was being sexually abused. And so all that created in me was this climate of shame. And I'd been sexually abused outside of the home as well. Oh, dear. So that was just like, you know, I, I'm walking around with my shoulders up at my ears. Yeah. And there were other things that went on. There was emotional abuse and, mm-hmm. and, and physical abuse in the home. And again, I had that sense that, hey, I remember going to a guidance counselor and going, hey, th- th- there's something really, really wrong here. And this is in the 1970s. But there was nobody there. There was no protection. So, Laura, where did you escape for peace? Where did your peace come from, or did you have any? I did, and this is really embarrassing because I've never admitted it out loud. (laughs) (laughs) Well, there was Starsky and Hutch. Yes. Okay? Yes. And there was the streets of San Francisco. Yes. And so I've never told this to anybody. And so I used to imagine that Michael Douglas was going to save me. Oh. You know, I created these fantasies. Of course. And then there there was food. And that was my primary addiction. Mm. And I remember, I remember my sister and I were responsible for cleaning the house every day. And my mom worked. And you know how the military family is, right? You have to keep everything spot on. In an alcoholic family, everything has to show perfectly. Okay? Yes. So I would wait at one end of the house with a peanut butter jar in my hand. And I would be eating, compulsively overeating, and mm. waiting for my mom to come home. And I had had mixed, I had a drink mixed in my hand of Tom Collins for her. So oh. that when she came in, I would hand her her drink. Right. And then she would do an inspection of the bathroom that I had cleaned. But I had to run and hide the peanut butter first, so I'd wait for her car at the window. Oh, my gosh. I mean, it was crazy. Yeah. But, you know... I don't want to come across as a victim. This was just something yeah. that was handed down and down and down and down and down and down from generation. This was just my life. Yeah. And I, it was chaos for everybody in the family. And, and there was, they were suffering from pain. They had all these unresolved issues. My mom would have grown up during World War II in yes. England. Yes. And had been a displaced person. Sure. And she'd had all the beatings herself. So, yeah. So generational. Generational. Wow. And praise God, everybody's in recovery today. Oh, thank you, Jesus. Yeah, and I've got a great oh. ending to the story about my dad, too, so if you want to check that out. Well, we will. We're, okay. we're, we're going to get into all of that. You, you said 
though I picked up on one little word that you, you used earlier. You said, um, but my conscience was giving me this sense of kind of right and wrong, that, that something was truly wrong here. You know, a lot of people grow up in, uh, some are, I would say, maybe fortunate, or they would consider themselves fortunate to grow up in a Christian home. Some were not. Right. Um, many would say they're not sure if it's a blessing or a curse, <laughs> you know, to come up in a, you know, talking to our, our friend and co-host, you know, Mike Chaddock, he was mm. the PK, he was the pastor's kid, completely right. different story for him, even though his setting was an environment of Christianity, but still rebellion coming out of that. But where did that, that kind of voice in, in your head, that conscience, do you think come from what was it? I'm assuming your home was not a Christian home, but I, I don't want to presume that did faith play any role in anything that was going on? I mean, from your description, it doesn't sound like... Um... We, we grew up Catholic, okay. but I don't think it was there. I think it was in, innate in me. I think I was born with it. I honestly okay. do. And I'll tell you the reason why. I, I remember going up to my mom, and all times weren't bad. You yeah, know, all course. times were not bad. But I remember at five years old walking up to my mother and I said, Mom, I know what the soul looks like and I know where it is. Mm. It's this silvery thread-like thing and it spins around all the time. Wow. And it's, it looks like eights and they're all together and they're spinning around and it's on your left-hand side and I pointed to it and my mom is wow. just like looking at me and it's just there. It's just there and it's there all the time and it spins and it's really cool. Wow. That's what the soul looks like. I believe you. And I don't know where I got that from. I don't think I heard it. I just knew it was there. Yeah. And um, so I think God was in me and God was with me. Sure. And I think maybe there was, because I seemed to know that there was good and bad. And then I seemed to be like a kid that was like, okay, I'm going to work this and I'm not going to work that. Yeah. But I, I, I seemed to feel like there was, it's like, it's like now if I see somebody parking in a, handicapped. Yes. I get this sense of that is so wrong. I'm going to go tell you that's so right. wrong. And my husband right. goes, please don't do this again. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, I think, um, you know, God having created all of us, right. In his image, I, I think we are connected by that, that original called the OG, uh, DNA, yeah. you know, that comes from him yeah. and is implanted in, in all of us. So you know, I was going to ask you about your, your first sense of where that first sense maybe of, of your spiritual awareness came from. What you're describing is that it sounds like it came very early. It did. But then I was also rebellious. Yeah. I was very rebellious. But it felt like, and here's what I've come to the conclusion of, you know, this is the beautiful thing. And it took me many, many, many years because I was furious with God for mm. everything I went through. Of course everything I went through. But there are a couple things. First of all, God gave me the rebellious spirit to survive. He gave me this incredibly beautiful rebellious spirit to get through it. I remember my dad when we all got sober, when he got sober, I got sober later on, but <clears throat> my dad said, you know what, Laura, you're the strongest one in the family mm. because of what you've been through. Yeah. You're the strongest one. I was like, that blew my mind. But I had to, I had to, you know, I, I, he gave me this personality and he gave me this ability, but he was there with me the whole time and I never realized it. Yeah. I never, and I rejected God. Yes. And I had to, 
And that was okay. And I had to go through what I go through. Yeah. I had to go through what I went through. Right. I went to, you know, when I, when I knew God later on, I went, I actually ended up going to Rwanda and Tanzania. Mm. And the most brutal thing I've ever seen in my life was a museum in Rwanda where I think it was a thousand people were killed. It was a memorial site and they mm-hmm. left all the clothes of all the people that had been locked inside a church wow. and they had been cut down with machetes. Oh. And I could not understand how God could allow that to happen. But there was a beautiful window above this church and the light was sh- shining through on this. Mm. And remember what I told you about my memories, not having memories of my childhood? Yes. What I realized is that when I had been molested, and I'd been molested in my family, I'd been molested by a stranger in a building when I was 12. Mm. I'd been date raped when I was 18. You can go out of your body at the time, right? And you cannot remember it. Right. And what I realized when I was standing there at that horrible, horrible site, unable to reconcile what happens in evil, I thought, oh my gosh, maybe God stepped in mm-hmm. and took away their consciousness. Yes. It helped me. Yes. It helped me reconcile because it was such a horrible thing. Yeah. And then when I was in Rwanda and Tanzania, I, I heard that there had been, so, there was so much more abuse there with the kids. Yeah. And I realized I'm not the only one. This, I am not the only one. And when I started seeing the bigger picture, I started to heal. Yes. yes. I'm not the only one. This life isn't just about me. So true. You know, um, as you were telling me your story about um, being given that strength, that character trait of rebellion as a survival mode, I, it dawned on me as you were talking that I remember Corey Tinboom talking about her time in a concentration camp where she was thankful for the lice that God sent because when the lice was sent by God, the German troops would not invade their barracks and abuse them because they didn't want lice. And she praised God for the lice and praise God for your rebellious spirit. I still see it in you. It has, it's not gone, but God's using it. But God's using it. He does. He does. Yeah. So Laura, tell us about, your encounter with God, the moment for you, the realization that um, he was your savior, that you were his child, and that you would never be alone again. What was that like? Well, okay, there's two parts to the story. Okay. So when I was 12 years old and I was sent to my bedroom for, you know, punishment because I was doing something, whatever, and I was awaiting the, (laughs) I was waiting execution yeah. So um, I'm, I said to God, all right, you come down here, you show your face to me, and you rescue me from this hell hole. And if you don't, I'm done with you. Because we've been going to church all the time. I'm done with you. If you don't come down here and show me your face and take me away from here. And guess what? He didn't do it. <laughs> <laughs> didn't show up when you wanted him to. And I demanded. Yeah. So I said, I snapped my fingers. I am so <laughs> done with you. Wow. And that was 12. And so then, you know, survivors of sexual abuse, they, they um, are promiscuous. Oftentimes they act out. Mm. And so I had affairs with a bunch of um, men that had girlfriends, but that was okay. I rationalized because they weren't married. Mm. 
And I was a very angry chick, yeah. a very angry girl. And my parents were getting further and further into alcoholism and I was overweight. And then finally I got a, a job with a company and I was smoking. And so I slimmed down and I, yeah. I, I finally looked like a hot chick. And then I mm. went to, I had this company and we were all young and, you know, yuppies. Remember yuppies back yep. in the 1800s? <laughs> and um, so I got this job and I tried to seduce the boy that made the photocopies that was his job mm. and he turned me down i was drunk <sighs> i know oh dear sad and i was such a hot chick <laughs> and um so i went home drunk and and the next day um, my parents were in recovery by this time and i'd seen the changes in them yes so i went and um i went on this this little journey and uh, i could see my life just being in ruins yeah so uh, i just kind of had a spiritual experience mm. and so i got into recovery okay now, but this is a good part. So when I was 11 years sober, I was sitting outside chain smoking cigarettes and drinking coffee, like chain smoking coffee. And I was praying and meditating as I learned to do. Yes. And all of a sudden, um, oh, I forgot to tell you this part. Okay. So I had had an affair with a married man mm -hmm. in England. Mm. And it was three months and... Um, he was going to marry me, and guess what? He didn't. Go figure. <laughs> really? <laughs> and he went back to his wife, and I was absolutely devastated because he was the first person I really, really loved because he was unavailable, and that was easy. So um, I fell in love with him. I was devastated, and I moved back to the United States, and I was just devastated. And I realized that I wasn't such a good girl anymore. Mm. Because, you know, I could justify it with just not married men, but this was an actual married man. Yeah. And all of a sudden, just the guilt. Changed, yeah. And I realized I wasn't good. So I was sitting on my porch, and I was praying and meditating, and Jesus shows up in a vision. Mm. And I remember I had an argument with him when I was 12. Really? And he shows up in this vision, and it's like this movie starts playing in my mind. And it's like a Technicolor movie Yeah, that starts playing in my mind. And I'm looking at him, and now I'm part of the movie. Never happened to me before like this. Wow. So I'm part of this yeah. movie. And he's standing on this bridge, like on Balboa Island, on this like bridge. And he's pointing back to England. And he goes, Laura, you can go back there and chase that man. And then he points over the other in the opposite direction. And he goes, or you can come this way. Oh, my goodness. And there were all these people in the golden light. And they're like going, woohoo, woohoo. And they're all like going, yay. And they're like really clean cut. And they're waving their arms. And they were, it was the ugliest group of people I ever saw. Because <laughs> they were all looking like Lawrence Welk. And I'm like going, dude, this no, is not sorry. good. <laughs> and so he goes, and you can go back there. And you can chase him. Yeah. But I'm going to stand here and wait for you as long as it takes. Oh, my goodness. And isn't that the kind of love you've been looking for all your life? And it shut me up. And I just stood there and glared at him because the other choice didn't seem so good to me. Yeah. And finally I just go, oh, all right. And he goes, take my hand. And I couldn't because he was a man. You know what men were, right? Like, oh my really. goodness. So he goes, that's okay. We'll just stand here. And I looked down at his Birkenstocks and, you know. <laughs> It was cool. Wow. So that was my, that was the journey. And you know what? 
that's the whole message of God. He chose me and he offered me a choice. He gave me a choice. Yes. And the choice is love. Mm-hmm. It's not a demand. That changes everything. That changes the game. That is the game changer. It's yeah. a choice and it's a choice of love. Well, Laura, you preempted my next question because I was going to ask you if you've come to realize what it was that you were searching for, and you just told me that. Actually, Jesus told you that. You were looking for love, and you were really searching for him, right? Not Michael Douglas, yeah, but somebody that you could trust. Right. And I love that about our God, that he gives us a choice, and that he doesn't force himself on any of us but he never leaves us either. He's just waiting. Yep. He's just waiting. It took me a long time, even, you know, I've known Jesus for a long time. Yeah. But it took me a long time to realize that I could trust him. Yeah, of course. It took me a long time. Yeah. You know, I I, I couldn't understand Christianity versus relationship. Yeah. It took me a long time to sort that out. Yeah. But it's very simple. Yeah. Jesus always offers me a choice. It's not about rules. Jesus offers me a choice every time. So how would you describe your relationship with him now? So you've been walking with him for a while. We talked earlier about the fact that um, walking with God is not tiptoeing through the tulips of life. The trials and struggles are still there but there's something about the substantive nature of his kind of fixed position in your life that you can rely on. So how would you characterize your relationship with him now? It sounds like you feel comfortable being vulnerable with him yeah. and being honest with him. Mm-hmm. Is that Yeah, I correct? do. I feel like, um, you know, I feel like God is my best friend. Mm-hmm. I feel like God is more important than anything else in my life. Yeah. I feel like it's an adventure. Yeah. I keep thinking, you know, I've had little visions all my life, but now I'm, I'm understanding them. Yes. I see a lot of water. It's like the floodgates yeah. are open. It's like jumping in a river of joy every day. Yeah. It's not easy, but God is using my rebellious nature. You yeah. know, God is using every single thing in the past for good. Mm. I'm finally realizing it's not all about me. Yes. But what I realize is that God is so personally interested in me, and so am I. I'm fascinating <laughs> to myself. <laughs> of course you are. But, yeah. but the reason is he, he's healing me to be part of the bigger picture. Yeah. And I never knew, you know, I, it, it's taken me so long to heal, and I felt so ashamed. It's like, duh, I wish I could go out and be like normal people. Mm. And be in the world and be able to, you know, mm-hmm. you know, not be always so focused on self, but I've had to heal. But I see it now in the healing and giving it all to God because there's no way I could have done this. Yeah. He had to supernaturally heal me. And because I can say that it was him, and I can say that because I'm an honest person. I don't yes. I, I don't I don't lie. Yeah. Well I used to, <laughs> but but I don't lie. Yeah. And so I can say out and out, I didn't do this. I didn't have the power to do it because I tried to fix things on my own forever. Yeah. But when I surrendered because I was broken and God came and offered his hand to me. And when I said, okay, 
I mean, I came kicking and screaming. You know something? I just read that C.S. Lewis did the same thing. He yes. came kicking and screaming. I'm like, dude, I know I've been there. Many of us do. So I find that he leads me, and I'm like, it's so good. Yeah. My way was always fighting. My way was always breaking things. What I'm trying to say is, and I didn't, I went all over the place, but what I'm trying to say is that my personal healing is not only good for me, he's going to use it for other people. Yeah. That's incredible. And it's a, it's a central theme in all of our lives, Christians or non-Christian alike, is that when we're in painful situations, you know, as you were talking earlier, I was picturing Paul in prison. I was picturing Joseph in prison and that home environment that you described. I just had this picture in my mind of Laura, the rebellious one inside there kind of clanking at the bars of this personal prison that you were in. And we can ask ourselves in those times, what is the purpose of this pain? And it's very personal. You don't, you're not thinking about anybody else, but me and and why am I here? And when is this going to end? And I know that there's listeners that are hearing this today and and they know what we're talking about because many of them are in that prison in one shape, form, or another, wanting to understand why. And so I'm going to ask you, because you're alluding to the fact that you, this realization that you're connected to others. Life is not an isolated existence because God was relational and he created us as relational beings. We, we kind of do need each other, right? Right. So do you see purpose yes. today yep. in, in what you experienced? And just share with our listeners what that is. Well, I think the supernatural grace of God has helped me face my demons, Mm -hmm. you know? And the demons were not just what happened to me, but what I did to myself. Yeah. And I was so filled with hatred Mm -hmm. towards myself and towards others. Yeah. I could not understand the concept of forgiveness. And I remember asking people, how do you forgive? Yeah. And nobody could explain to me. (laughs) They couldn't. That's because... Of my own, I can't forgive. I have to have the power of God to be able to do it. I was not capable of doing it. It's not something that you can intellectualize. Right. And now I find that I don't have the power to do many things. Mm. And there's a phrase in Christianity, of myself, I am nothing the Father doeth the works. Yes. Well, that's the good news. You know, I can pick up a glass, I can do certain things, but the real power to do things like love, no, I, I can't do those things. Yeah. So I'll tell you the example is my father, the one who molested me, Yes. he developed Alzheimer's, but I would talk to him about Jesus because he had lost his faith a long time ago. Yeah. And he would say, I want to know, I want to know. And when he was in his dying days, I would go there and, and sometimes he wouldn't be fully clothed didn't freak me out. And I would take his hand and I would talk to him about Jesus. And I was there for him in his dying days. I sat by his bed and I felt him resisting, but I would, I would listen to the Holy Spirit and I would just be with my dad. Yeah. And I was there when he died. I'm not when he died. I'm sorry. I was there right before he died, but it was an incredible, it was an incredible journey of forgiveness. Yeah. And I really felt like my dad went to the Lord. Oh, man. And I've had other relationships in the family that have not healed. Mm -hmm. But I have done everything God has asked me to do. Everything. Love is the answer. Yes. But it's not something that I was capable of. Yeah. That's a miracle. That's a miracle. 
Laura, what? what um, was that the right question? <laughs> I don't even care about the question. The answer was was beautiful, really. That's what I love about being able to just sit down and have conversations with people that are are willing to be real. It's it's always beautiful. And honestly, I can just sense in looking at you, our audience can't see you, but I, I can sense this joy and this sense of closure with your dad. Yeah. That you don't have to wrestle with those memories or the no. anger or the bitterness or things that would keep you trapped in that prison. No. You, you're like free. I can see it. You know what? Here's the thing. I still have conflicts. Yes. Part of my problem is, one, I, I talk too long. Two, I speak the truth. Yes. Not everybody wants to hear the truth. That's very true. And I shake people up. I think if a person in recovery yeah. is in the outside world speaking to people not in recovery, yeah. it shakes them to the core. Sure. Because I challenge them to look at themselves just by my very nature, by being authentic and genuine. Yeah. It's not always fun to be around me. Seriously, come on. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I tell you the truth and it's like, okay, I don't really want to hear about that. But, you know, that's the freedom. Yeah. Once you face your ugliness, your, you know, character defects, your sins, whatever. Yeah. But the truth is that's where the freedom lies. Well, and you're speaking truth right now, Laura, because I think what you're touching on is one of the most difficult challenges that we face as human beings is that it's very difficult for us to lower down our walls of who we think we are, our identity. And many of us don't really want to see the truth about ourselves. It's the hardest thing to deal with. It is. And the easiest to recoil from. But that journey that you're talking about of realizing that life isn't all about you no. is terribly free, right? I had this incredible experience I have to tell you about, you know, about idols, about so what we say yes. about idols. Yeah. So I have justified compulsive overeating. I'm still, you know, I'm still struggling with food all my life. Mm-hmm. The other day I was talking to God and and God invited me to stop compulsively overeating. And I thought maybe this is an offer because maybe compulsive overeating leads to heart disease. Yes. Or maybe it's because he wants me to be healthy. Mm -hmm. Um, Maybe he's trying to save my life. Yeah. Okay. So now that's revolutionary in just the very fact that I'm thinking, oh, maybe it's for my good, not because he wants to destroy me. Yes. Okay. So that's a different concept of thinking altogether. So then something happened and I told God, I'm going to disobey you. I out and out said, I'm going to disobey your request. And I went to the refrigerator and said, I'm eating this, (laughs) I'm eating this, I'm eating this, and I'm eating this. Now, normally, I'm very humble and I say to him, okay, I'm going to do this or help me with this or please guide me or distract me or yada, yada, yada. But I said, "Um, sorry, you're out of the picture right now. The next morning I woke up in my prayer and meditation. I said, I have to admit something that you probably are already aware of. <laughs> yes. Yeah. And I did this and I was feeling very bad about myself. Yeah. Yeah. And I was like, I'm so sorry. And I was waiting for him to just nail me. Yeah. And he goes, yeah, but I love you. Yes. I love you. And I went, you do? <laughs> oh, boy. Wow. This is the best thing that ever happened to me. <laughs> yeah. Man, I want to do whatever you tell me to now. Mm. I just love you. Yeah. And then I heard him say, you 
are mine. Wow. You are mine. He gave me that just so that I would know whatever I do, he loves me. He's never yes. going to leave me. I'm not that girl anymore that grew up that can't remember anything. Laura, people are listening to this right now, and they may be feeling as though God has left them. What would you say to them? Oh, no, he's got his hand right out to you. Just take it. Even if you try it, you'll get your refund back. (laughs) He loves you. You are his. Don't let let religion get in the way. He loves you. You touched on this, Laura, but I want to ask it more directly. I believe that when we are walking close with God, that our entire sense of who we are, our identity changes from what we thought we were or who we thought we needed to be to please others to who we truly are. And I know, as you're, as you're saying, that life is still a daily struggle for all of us because all of us are having our idols torn down around us, the things that we trusted in or we're so certain about that walk away from us when we need it most. But I remember one of my favorite questions in the Bible was asked to John the Baptist when they came to him and said, who do you say you are? So do you feel, Laura, that you have a truer sense of who you are? I mean, who would you, what, how would you answer that question to somebody that said, you know, Laura, who do you say you are? I say that I am the beloved of Christ. Mm. I am a child of Christ. And if people ask me, or if people tell me something I don't like, I say, you are not the boss of me. God is the boss of me. And I said that to my husband on our second date. And he looked at me like he was scared of me. (laughs) I said, are you scared of me? And he said, yes. And I said, good. (laughs) And he still married me. (laughs) That's awesome. Laura, what would you say are the biggest changes in yourself that you have seen? since giving your life to Christ. When you said that, I thought about the the first time I came into my recovery program and somebody smiled at me. (laughs) And I said, what the F you looking at? (laughs) MF. (laughs) I don't talk like that anymore. There you go. (laughs) Okay, there's one one change that we're all thankful for. (laughs) I love it. Yeah. I'm not afraid anymore like that. There you go. I'm yeah. not angry like that anymore. Yes. Although I was watching a political thing the other day. and Oh, that'll you know, do it. Yeah. Um, but then I, I apologize immediately to the Lord. You know what? I don't, I, you know, I, I, I used to react to my reactions, to my reactions, to my reactions, to my reactions. And now I find that I, I'm really working hard at, not working hard, but I'm conscious of the fact that I don't want to react immediately. So yes. I try and shut my mouth. Yeah. But I, I'm better on paper than I am in person. <laughs> we all are. We all are. <laughs> so Laura, you've established that God has been on this journey with you from childhood. And you've also told us that after accepting Jesus, that the trials don't end. Right. That it's a daily battle. Having accepted him, have you ever faced that time, that crisis of faith, where you would see yourself saying, you know what, this is too much. I, uh, I'm going to have to find my path somewhere else. 
you ever imagine yourself walking away from him? I think what I've battled more than anything else is because I had post-traumatic stress, yeah. I've had to battle my thoughts mm. and to say, where's this coming from? Yes. Is this coming from, is this thought me? Is it the Holy Spirit? Is it this? Is it that? And I finally now trust it's the Holy Spirit. Yeah. That's been my biggest battle. Got it. So it's not so much would I, would I go to anybody else. It's more is this actually from God. Yeah. And thank God that God has sent me people in the community. But more so than that. Yeah. Here's the big plug for the Bible. Mm-hmm. I would have these thoughts of what I thought was right and wrong or yeah. what he, I felt led by something. And then I'd go to the Bible and it was like right there. So-and-so in the Bible had experienced that. I'm going, oh, I'm not the only one. Yeah. So, so it was backed up biblically in scripture. Yes. So that I knew I wasn't crazy. Yeah. And that was cool. Because that was what was so scary to me, having endured what I endured. I didn't know if other people had these. Yeah. And that I was hearing, you know, this incredible stuff. But what I learned was God is love. And when you hear those other thoughts that they're not loving, they're yeah. not from God. It's not him. Yeah. Yeah. Could be coming out of my guilt, could be out of my shame, could it be, you know. Yeah. And other people sometimes aren't very I don't know if you've seen this or felt this. They aren't they're not necessarily nice. Yes. I have. I think we all have. Yeah. So we accept Christ. We feel change. We find more peace. Yep. Peace. But walking with Jesus is not like plugging in a, um, a relaxation tape. You know, our, our lives aren't just one big, joyous, peaceful bubble where we float through life with no trials. It's not like that for you. <laughs> oh, I'm sorry. <laughs> Well, I have things I need to confess to you then, apparently. We need to turn the tables. I have a lot to say. For people listening um, to us, Laura, who, you know, every day they're waking up and it's a battle for them, what keeps you, from a practical sense, what keeps you grounded every day? Like, what are the tools that you use to stay connected either to the community or to, to Christ? That, that others could deploy right. w- when they're facing these struggles. Okay, so I've already told you that I'm still a compulsive overeater. Yes. I still struggle with that. I still struggle with, you know, insecurity. Uh, I still have all those issues. So I realize that. But what I've realized is that, you know what? God still loves me now. Yes. The tools that I use every day, I learned a long time ago. Okay. I still take an inventory. You know, when I, I show up to God every morning, and that's my favorite time of the day. And I make my coffee, take my dog out. Then I sit down when my dog stops bugging me. And uh, I pray and I meditate. Mm. And I listen to God. And I journal. And mm. I let God lead me through the Bible or yeah. whatever books he's got planned for me. Yes. And then we go and we research and I, and I hear things. Yeah. And I discover things. And I tell him where I've been wrong. And I ask him to forgive me. Yeah. And then I'm forgiven. I don't have to... I don't have to linger in that past yeah. junk and let it go. 
And then we set, we're set for the day, and I just ask him to guide me and direct me and let me be of service. Yeah. And take me through the day. Laura, did you find that it was, um, was it difficult to give yourself permission to just sit and be quiet and relax and no. kind of lean into him? No, I've been doing it for 33 years. Okay. And I actually love the quiet. That's me. Okay. So I'm, you anticipate that. Yeah. I'm, I, yeah. I'm an English major. Come yeah. on. Yep. I love it. And it's nice because it sounds like you begin with a blank slate. Yeah. Right. The story isn't told. It no, just unfolds. No. And throughout the day, I'll pray. And the more I pray and just kind of talk to God and just check in. And it's not a woo-woo thing at all. Yeah. It's more like talking to your best friend. Yeah. That's all. Jesus is your best friend. You know, I, I heard of this man. I read about this man in Ireland was dying. And so he put a chair next to his bed. He would invite Jesus to sit next to him. Oh, wow. And he would talk to him. Yeah. That's exactly it. It's just your best friend. You, you hang out with your best friend. You know, I know so many Christians, um, even non-Christians, I think, would admit to this, that we, we have some, this warped view, you know, that if we don't have the old King James words to speak, and that it has to be a very reverent, you know, time on our knees in front of the Lord praying, it isn't that really. He's, he doesn't ask for that. No. He, he asks to just, he's, he's our father. He's our friend, which is one of my favorite words in the Bible is Abba. Yes. You know, daddy. Yep. It's just a conversation. And I think that many of us kind of um, are just unprepared to come to him that way. And, and it shuts us out of so much opportunity to really get to know him and for him to really understand you at that moment. And I think we've kind of lost that heart of conversation with him. And it, I think it unfortunately keeps too many of us away. If anybody, again, I think we all, I think everybody has their different ways of understanding. I think Jesus comes to us in ways that we can accept. Yes. So if somebody needs a bullhorn, <laughs> yeah. he'll come to you with a bullhorn. Right. I wouldn't say a clown, but maybe somebody needs a clown, you know? Maybe somebody needs a clown. Okay, well, Jesus will, will, will talk to you in the language that you understand. Yes. I needed love. Yeah. I, I, I didn't need a whip. If, if you come with a whip at me, man, I'm going to rebel against you. Yeah. I will walk away, and I will still do that. <laughs> do not yeah. whip me. Yes. The answer for me was love. Yeah. But he asks us to come to him as little children. And he, and he treats us with such mercy yeah. and such grace. Yeah. And I'm like, oh my gosh, I just want to walk with you because you're so kind to me. Yeah. And, and you know what? Sometimes I feel like I don't speak enough humbly or in humility. And I hope I'm not coming across as if I'm like, oh, he's my best friend. And did, no, did, did. no I, I'm so humbled by the fact, and I can't explain it enough that this has nothing to do with my effort. Yeah. It has everything to do with my surrender. Yes. I, I tried to make things work on my own. Yeah. And I broke everything. I couldn't make it right. I had mental breakdowns because I couldn't make things work. And I remember mm -hmm. saying, I can't make this work. Yeah. I can't make it work. Yeah. Well, I think that that maybe the toughest word in the English language is surrender. Yeah. None of us want to do that. But when it's I, not in our nature. When I surrendered, because I had to, not because it was a fun ride in the park. Yes. That's when I got to find life. Yeah. 
And you notice I haven't mentioned eternal life. Well, that's because I'm like, I'm staying in the now, but you know what yeah. the added benefit is? I yeah. have eternal life. Exactly. What does that look like? All the chocolate you can eat. Yeah. And you won't get fired for eating it. No. <laughs> Remember from your bio. <laughs> That reminded me of the Lucy episode where she's shoving those chocolates in the yes. conveyor belts going so yes. fast. I pictured you when I read yes. your. And you know, I thought, I thought growing up a Catholic, I thought I'm a very good girl. I come from a military family and I yeah. get one for you chocolate and two for me. And, and the boss comes along and says, you're fired. What? Hey. Yeah. What part what? of this don't what? you understand? <laughs> so Laura, let's, let's fast forward a bit. Let's get into the Laura that's sitting here with us today. We've learned so much already about your journey. It's been so awesome. And we talked about purpose and pain, and you have had a lifetime of these experiences. Do you feel like they've prepared you for something? Yes. Now? Yep. Help us understand what's your passion now? What, what did all that add up to in terms of how God can, is using you right now? I think I'm ready to start cooking. <laughs> He is a powerful God. Don't tell my husband I said that. No, we got to keep got to keep him in the kitchen. That's awesome. Yeah. Oh dear. I cracked myself up. Um no. Um I think you know what? I have wanted to write a book for a long time. And I've been oh, encouraged man. to write a book for a long time. Yeah. But I didn't want it to be like, I did this and I did that and I did yeah. this and I did that. And I wasn't ready. And I also wanted to be able to write about my past, but I didn't want to be the victim and they did this to me and they did that to me. No, it's, you know, there has been so much resolution and it has to be in a place where there's been resolution. And, yeah. you know, I'm so over it. Mm. This is all good news. And I just, I just see it, you know, and every time there's a conflict, I can see the good. I can just see the absolute good. I can see the lice. Yeah. Yeah. I can see the lice and I'm just like, praise God. Wow. Yeah. And I mean, I get so excited and my mouth runneth over. (laughs) (laughs) I told the listeners that they were going to be in for a treat today. Laura, we hear this uh, phrase a lot in Christendom about being called, a calling from God. I think many of us don't even understand what that means. Do you feel like you've been called to something now? What is that? I'm called to be the beloved of God (sighs) and just to be free in him, to be who I was made to be. I don't have a specific calling to be anything other than who he created me to be. There's no pressure. I love that. No pressure. I don't have to be defined by anything other yeah. than him. Yeah. And so it's not like I have to be a secretary. I have to be a writer. Yeah. I don't have to be accomplished. Yeah. I don't have to do anything. I don't have to define myself by anything anybody says. And I used to, I wanted so badly to fit in. Of course. But I'm free. I don't have to put a label on myself. Do you know what labels are doing to our country or to our world right now? Yeah, I think we're, you know, we're at a time and you've touched on this a bit, but we should just, we should kind of put a bow on this one because I really believe that there's so much pressure from culture, the culture around us today to conform. Right to its version of who we're supposed to be. Right. 
And um, I've seen it in my business life. I've seen it in my personal life. I see so many people struggling, trying to live up to an image of something that was never created for them and feeling pressured to compromise like that voice you were talking about in your head early on that was speaking truth to you. But so many of us are walking around lost because we've lost our sense of identity because we're trying to be something that we're not. And what you just said to me is one of the most poignant invitations that I've ever heard. Who would not want to hear the Lord saying, all you have to do is be who I made you to be, period. Talk about no pressure. It's no pressure. You just He's calling us to follow if we want to. If we want to. If we want to. Yeah. He's calling us to just be. Yeah. It's radical, but you can't understand it until you take his hand. Yeah. It's a leap of faith. woo Yeah. And the adventure begins. And the adventure begins. <laughs> it's like jumping into a river of joy. I love it. I love that. So I'm sitting here in front of this woman who just seems so at peace with herself contrasted with the story of the young Laura, what advice would you give to that young Laura from your perspective of where you're sitting today in your relationship with Christ? What would you tell her? Can I answer it with a different answer than you expect? I would expect nothing less from you. Okay. Again, (laughs) again, when I was about maybe five or six, we lived in Germany. And um, we had this painting on a wall that this little German guy came around door-to-door selling. And this painting was an oil painting that had paint, you know, like stuck out, antipasta, or I forget what my husband calls it. He's a painter. (laughs) Yeah. Um, Impasto or whatever. But anyway, it was this tree, this deciduous tree, oak tree, and it was a stormy day, and it was in the fall, and there was puddle water underneath it, and the leaves had fallen off the tree, and there were a few pine trees around, but it was in, it was in a forest in the middle of autumn. With a, It was a cloudy day, and it hung over our fireplace. I would look at that picture, and I would see that picture. Now, this is one memory I have, and I would stare at that picture, and in my mind's eye, I would go out of that picture and I'd go into a green field and it Mm. would be all green and hilly Mm -hmm. and I would go into the green field and I would feel safe. I would just be free. And that's when the abuse first happened. Gotcha. Okay. Yeah. So I was talking to God the other day and saying how grateful I was to him and just that my life was so unbelievable. And as I looked around where I lived, yeah. I looked at the rolling green mm, hills. Yes. I live on a golf course. Oh. And I thought, man, you were with me the whole time. Boy. Praise God. And I, I really feel like he had a plan for me. And it wasn't what I chose, but there's a plan for it. Yeah. Much, much, much bigger than me this is much bigger than me yeah and he gave me escape routes the whole time and he was with me the whole time he was with me the whole time yeah this is much bigger than i can understand right now and there's a much bigger plan that all understand 
when I get to see him face yeah. to face, but he's showing me bits and pieces of him all the time. Yeah. And I get to see that and experience that and tell people about that. Do you know mm-hmm. how exciting that is? Well, you do, but you know, if, yes. I, if you didn't make me sit here and talk <laughs> in this little thing, I have to sit here and be kind of still. Yeah. But I'd be jumping up and down right now and be singing, hello, Dolly. I can see that. I know. Laura, the Bible calls each one of God's children his living stones. Mm-hmm. You know, the title of our podcast is Standing Stones mm-hmm. for a reason. Right. It's to be able to tell the stories of what our encounters with God were and how he did show up for us so that we could pass that story on to generations. So if I'm walking in a field, in one of those green fields that you're talking about, and I come to a stone that has Laura's name on it, her standing stone, what is the story that you would want to be told about you? That I was a rebel without a cause and that Jesus came and lifted me up and said, Fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by your name. You are mine. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And through the rivers, they shall not overflow you. When you walk through the fire, you shall not be burned, nor shall the flame scorch you. For I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. That's Isaiah 43, 1 through 3. Well, this has been just a real privilege to just spend quiet time with you and hear your story. I know how many people are going to relate to it, be inspired by it, prayerfully empowered by it, and that they would be girded up knowing that whatever trial they're facing, they are not alone. And so thank you so much for giving so much of yourself today. I'm just blown away and honored by being able to sit down and talk with you. So thank you for being with us. Thank you and God bless. Thank you. God bless you too. Thank you for joining us this week. If you haven't yet, please follow us on Apple Podcasts or Spotify and check out our website at standingstonestories.com. Tune in again next week. And until then, may God richly bless you.